God. Greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly. And it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. But let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass and it flowers, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should ever say, I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by its own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. Jared and I sat down as we were working through our fall and we decided that we wanted to walk through one of the smaller New Testament books. Uh, The reason for that is we wanted to be able to look at the voice of an author that we've not spent much time with. So when you look through the Bible, you have various authors of the various books, and there are some who are repeat offenders. Some of these guys write multiple books of the Bible. When we look through scriptures, we see that Paul has written a large portion of the New Testament. Luke wrote a large portion of the New Testament. Then we have people like James. James is one of the favorite books of many people who read the Bible, though it's incredibly difficult. It's not incredibly difficult to understand. It's just an incredibly difficult book to process. Because everything that James says is packing a huge punch. Look, you guys know, and over the time we spent together, in two and a half years, I'm not a real baseball fan. I don't baseball much, but I do know this, that if I'm watching a baseball game and I see a second baseman who's five foot two uh, hit a home run in to the stratosphere, I know that he, he packs a powerful punch when I look through the book of James. It reminds me much of Jose Altuve hitting a ball to the other side of the earth so that we can go and defeat the Washington Nationals who still resonate with remnants of their Canadian experience in Montreal. We look into James and we get to see that this book, five chapters that we will look over at over the course of ten weeks, has this huge punch for us because God is forcing us to consider who we are 
in light of who he is and how who we are is not just something that we say, it's something that we do. It is faith at work. What we believe put into practice. So hopefully, as we spend this time in the text, we'll notice what God is teaching us, why God would teach us that at this very moment that we're walking through. So James, a servant of God. That's how the book starts. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ greetings. That's his literal introduction. Paul is much wordier. Other books of the Bible have longer introductions. James says, hey, I serve Jesus. He's the Lord of all things. Greetings. Uh, that is the New Testament writer's way of saying, hey, y'all. So we look into the text, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. Well, who is this man? Why is it such a big deal that this person would write this book at this particular point in time for not only these particular people, but for the people who sit in this room? James is the half-brother of Jesus. Most of our scholars are going to look at the idea of who James is. They don't argue about that a whole lot. James, the brother of Jesus, writes what we know to be the oldest letter in the New Testament. So many believe this book's written around 50 A.D., And because it is written at this point, we know that James is someone who has experienced the resurrection of Jesus, which should give us a a moment to stop and pause. Because as we look through the New Testament, many of us overlook the places where we see that Jesus has literal brothers and sisters. That he has other people in his home who share part of his human DNA. So we can see that James is one of these. And as we look through the New Testament, in particular the Gospels, we notice that the brothers of Jesus, four brothers, two sisters, they don't believe him to be the Messiah. And the reason for that is that it is difficult to think that anyone that you spend an incredible amount of time with is the Savior of the world. Can you imagine living in the home of Jesus Can you imagine how you could never blame anything on him because he never did anything wrong? That's what James deals with. And we see James write this letter, and you'll notice throughout the entirety of these five chapters, multiple times he says things that allude to, that remind us of things that Jesus said. And I almost see in in my head, as I consider this, you've got James, the brother of Jesus, who's mentioned from time to time throughout the Gospels, almost there lurking, hearing his brother teach, shaking his head with his arms crossed. Thinking to himself, why does this person get promoted to this portion, to this place in life? And it's as if when you read through the book of James, that something took place for him that caused him to uncross his arms and lift them. Because this Jesus, who is his earthly brother, is also the Savior of the world. And the place that we see that show itself in fullness comes in the book of Corinthians when we see that James considers the resurrection of Jesus. It is post-resurrection that James says, wait, all of those things, they matter. And all of those things have now clicked. So for any of us in this room who would consider who Jesus is, I want you to know who He is in full. Apart from the resurrection, who we know is Jesus is not really Jesus. The goal of God, when we look through Scriptures, is to open it, to see God fully known to us through the person of His Son, and in the power of His resurrection, we understand that the Bible has something for us, something that matters to us. James is the brother of Jesus. That's who the who is. We also have to ask, who is He writing to? 
to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. The Jewish people who have been sent all over that portion of the world, James writes this letter. And as he writes the letter, he deals with certain things. He deals with what their dispersion led to. It led to them doubting God's providence. It led to them being tempted to be like their pagan neighbors. I love when we open the Bible and we see that the books of the Bible, though they are letters to a particular people, they don't miss us. Because even in this room right now, I know some of you, I don't know what you're walking through specifically. Some of you more so than others. But I know that there are people in these chairs right now who are doubting the providence of God. That's a big Bible word. Doubting that God works in and through all things. And I know that there are many of us who are tempted to live lives like our neighbors. James says all of these things and he gets down to business. When he says this to us in verse 2. Let me give you a breakdown of these next few verses. In verses 2 through 4 we see the trials that are there. Trials in 2 through 4. In 5 through 8 we see a two-faced idea. 5 through 8, two-faced. 9 through 12 we see two men. And 13 through 18 we see two paths. One more time for those in the back. We have... We have 2 through 4, trials. 5 through 8, two-faced. 9 through 12, two men. 13 through 18, two paths. Consider it great joy, trials. Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. So it's a stop and collaborate and listen. Here's what we see. When we read the word consider in the original language, it, it actually means to evaluate or to count. So count it great joy, my brothers and sisters, when you have various trials. So let me just ask you this question. So church folk showing up with me on a Sunday morning at 10.30, you either got tricked into coming or this is part of your habit. How many of you would say, if I were to ask, how many of you want to be more like Jesus, with a show of hands, could you raise it? I would, if you would like to be more like Jesus, raise your hand. Look at that. I want you to be more like Jesus. Threw those down incredibly quickly. Okay, so how many of you would like to have trials? That's the same question. The same question is being asked. Do I want to be more like Jesus? Well, yes. Well, what's going to make me more like Jesus? According to the brother of Jesus who dealt with the resurrection of his brother... Trials will make us more like Jesus. So this passage is incredibly helpful to all of us. This passage is beneficial for every person in this room. What we're going to deal with every week in here is beneficial for every person in this room. Look, if you're with us for the first time, what we do regularly is preach through books of the Bible, very much like what we're going to do with the book of James. Because we believe that God displays Himself through not being divided in the way that we approach His Word. But, but if you're with us for the... If you've been with us a long time, you also notice that we walk through various themes in the Bible. We do so to see core scriptural truths highlighted systematically. We work through texts that have consistent themes to show the prevalent themes of the Bible. Both of these things working together to show the goodness of God and how the goodness of God hits us at different places and in different ways. 
In fact, if you're, you're either going to go through a trial, here's the truth. For every one of us, as we listen to this text about trials today, you are either going to go through a trial or you're going through one right now. All of us, every single one of us, no one gets to not be part of this. You're going to deal with various trials. That same word is used in Peter's, when Peter writes his letter of 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter, we see the idea of various trials. The breakdown of that word means the, the many colors of trials, which means that trials that we deal with in this life have different ways that they show themselves. We see trials like persecution in the book of James. We see trials like poverty. We see the trial of financial problems. Not only do we see those, we see oppression. We see marginalization. We see people being ostracized. We see sickness throughout this book. In, in 1 verse 1, out of the gate, we see relocation. That's what dispersion means. In the book of James, we see the conflict of the church. We look through this passage, and we see God telling us to evaluate our trials and to consider how those things that we're walking through would help us to know God more, to love Him more, and to be more like Jesus. So as we look at those things together, we get to consider in the, in the year 2019 how persecution, poverty, financial problems may be a part of our own trials. There may be some of us in this room who are oppressed. Unfortunately, there may be some of us who are oppressors. Some of us may feel marginalized. Some of us are dealing with sickness. Some of us have been relocated. Much of our area has been relocated in a different way than we see in the book of James, but you've been put in a different place. Conflict in the church. We're void of that for the most part. But we do see these things running through, these various ideas through this book, and it helps us to know that God has a desire, God has an intent, God has a goal for my life and for yours, and those are things that we will grow to experience in full because of what He has shown us through the trials that we face. Because you know that the testing of your faith, verse 3, produces endurance... And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. The testing of your faith produces staying power, is the way one guy puts it. Another person says it produces heroic endurance, fortitude. Eugene Peterson, who, who wrote what we call the message, a paraphrase of the Bible, said, said it this way. When we are tested, our faith shows its true colors. So in the face of your trial, is your faith showing its true colors? As real or false? As fake or genuine? Well, what causes these trials? That's a question we have to ask. Because it's a hard world that we live in and a difficult life that we're going through. What's going to cause me and what's going to cause you to go through trials? And when we look at that, we see that they come from every direction. Charles Stanley, pastor of First Baptist Atlanta for years, he says trials should come from our that trials could come from ourselves and the unwise decisions that we have made in the past. Just so you're with me, if you've ever faced a trial because of something like that, raise your hand. Okay, uh, that they could come from other people. If you've ever faced a trial like that, raise your hand. If they're sitting beside you, don't raise your hand. They could come just because we live in a fallen world that is incomplete. 
If the sinful brokenness of the world has ever showed itself and caused you to walk through a trial, could you raise your hand? They could come as attacks from Satan. We even see that trials can come from God. There are all kinds of reasons behind our trials. And we'll never know why we deal with these things. But we do know that God, while we're dealing with Him in the immediate, but God's ultimate goal for those is so that we'll be more like Him. In a fallen world, the only way for us to display real faith is when we deal with trials. What does your faith on trial look like? Then we then see this. We see the idea of a two-faced notion in the book. In verses 5 through 8, let me read those again. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives it to him generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surgeon and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. Uh, Greek scholar, there's a Greek scholar... A.T. Robertson, and when he talks about wisdom, because that's what we're saying that we should ask for here, he says that wisdom defines it in this way. It is the practical use of knowledge. So it's where you go with what you know. How you put into practice what you know in your head. So it says if any of you lacks wisdom... If any of you lacks knowledge that you're to be doing things with, you should ask God. So this passage from the book of James, the brother of Jesus, is telling us if we want to know how to practice our faith, we should ask God. But we don't ask God as someone who is grudging of things. We ask a God who gives to us generously and ungrudgingly. Look, God's not like me. He is very unlike me because I am exhausted with people at times. And I'm sure in this room right now you can grow exhausted with people at times. If you do not grow exhausted with people, I'm exhausted with you in this moment. It's like with the kids. So I've got four. And if I have M&M's. And I love M&M's. I don't like plain M&M's. I don't understand those. I, I do like peanut M&M's, but I prefer the peanut butter M&M's. Anybody with me? Can I get an amen from the room? Okay, good. Praise him with the clanging cymbals. Uh, if Alder sees me with M&M's, he will come to me and he will ask for said M&M. And I will give to him ungrudgingly for a moment. But the way that that kid works is he circles around the room and then he loops back to me with my now depleted bag of M&M's to ask for more. And he will do this until they're gone. And he does not care if I eat any of those M&M's. His goal is to get that. So when we look at this passage, we see that God is not like me and that he does not grow frustrated by us asking him things. God is unlike us in that he does not tire. He is not exhausted. He is ever loving. He is ever caring for us. If you want to know how to live wisely in this world, God says, just ask me. Ask me and I'll show you how to treat people. Ask me and I will show you what I'm like. Because the God that we worship is a constantly giving God. The Bible tells us that. It, it, throughout, you can see just echoes of it. 
He, he gives life and breath in Acts 17. He gave up His Son in John chapter 3, verse 16. He gave up His Son in Romans 8, verse 32. In every other religion in the world, the ones that we have declared as religions and in the ones that we just function as religion, that function as religions, in every other religion that God takes, and in Christianity God gives... He gives over and over and over out of abundance, out of care, out of grace, out of mercy because he knows as he gives you wisdom you can deal with the trials that you're facing. Let him ask in faith without doubting. That's the word of, of James here. For the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. The main word here, like the, the central word of that is toss. The doubter is completely out of control and doesn't know where to go because he has a lack of control. If you've ever been on a plane, they tell you to keep your seat buckled all the time, all the time, right? But you inevitably have to go to the restroom because they give you free ginger ale and they tell you the turbulence is going to come. If you've ever been on a plane with turbulence and it begins to shake the plane, you're doing everything you can to steady yourself. But if you're steadying yourself without something to anchor you, no matter how well balanced you are, now, no matter how great your core strength happens to be, you'll be tossed from one place to the next. That's what James is saying here. James is saying for those of us who have not stabilized ourselves with who God is and how God is, it, we're, we're tossed about. The person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. That person, here's what's overwhelming, is a believer who, because of his double-minded nature, has been robbed of every benefit and security of belief. The person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord because though they are a believer, due to their double-mindedness, They've been robbed of every benefit and security of belief. It's the idea that we trust the Lord. That doesn't mean that we don't go to doctors. That doesn't mean that we don't seek counsel. That just means that we grasp that those things are derived from the relationship we have from God and they don't exist as substitutes to it. Your health comes from the Lord. Your guidance will come from the Lord. Because this is the first moment. So, so you hear this and it's the first moment we're reminded as you read through James's words that this is, these are words coming from the brother of Jesus. Because Jesus will say to us in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. James is talking about someone attempting to serve two masters and finding no stability there. It reminds us that James knows the Old Testament because in the Old Testament we have Elijah who would tell the Jewish people who wanted to worship Baal, would you just stop limping back and forth between two opinions? Here's what's crazy. We're talking about someone who is a real believer. A person has a relationship with God. And that person will never move towards spiritual maturity because that man fills this room and rooms like this every Sunday, yet they're not finding and knowing and anchoring themselves in the God who we say that we worship here. 
That person's double-minded and unstable in all ways. One breakdown says he's a two-souled man attempting to live in two worlds who has two goals. They have the goal of this world and they have the goal of God's kingdom. Friends, everything in your life is an opportunity or an idol. It either advances the kingdom or it becomes a kingdom in and unto itself. James then goes to a very practical thing for this church. Two men that you see in verses 9 through 12. Go there with me. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. But let the rich man boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. We have a paradox here. One, one theologian says a paradox is truth standing on its head shouting for attention. So you have an upside down idea that's saying look at me, look at me, look at me. And the paradox here is between a rich man who is poor and a poor man who is rich. It's the trial of poverty and it's the trial of wealth. Every one of us should be saying I would prefer the trial of wealth, right? But here you have James pointing out that you have these poor people who are rich. Who are, the, or who are they? They are Jewish Christians who are poor because of their faith in God. Their trust that God would care for them. I grew up in a home where, where I was 16. I moved in with my grandmother. We found out when I was 7 that my mother had cancer. When she passed away, I moved in with a little old lady. And she was an incredible little old lady, but a little old lady nonetheless that came with lots of little old lady moments. She never learned to play video games. If we had ever worked through that, it would have been awesome. She never made more than $25,000 a year. She didn't drive. She worked at a saddle shop. I, I know you may not believe this, but we made horse saddles in the state of Tennessee. That they shipped all over the world, even Texas, even this nation. But because she did not drive, when she got older and she had sisters or nephews or whomever who happened to be sick, she would have me take her to visit them. Her nephew was in a hospital bed. And I remember my grandmother walking in to pray over him. And she opened that prayer with this. Jesus, you are the most precious thing in this world to me. That is a poverty that is incredibly wealthy. Jesus, you're the most precious thing in this world to me. A person who has gained a lot in the person of Christ. It's what Jesus alludes to in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. We then see verses 10 through 12 as he talks about the rich man who is in actuality poor and should boast in that poverty. Which is harder to understand and that's why it seems that James elaborates on it more. It makes sense that those of us who are spiritually or who are literally poor would find that our riches are in another place. For those of us who are incredibly well off, which is the majority of this room, 
it is much harder for us to find that we should humble ourselves because nothing in our lives tells us that we should. Let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away. And then James quotes from the Old Testament again, Isaiah chapter 40. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. When he alludes to it, he says, He will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with a scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flowers fall off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. The rich man should rejoice because God has met with him. In no way are these lists exhaustive. In no way are these comparisons exhaustive. We could go further. We could talk about the difference in loneliness and companionship. We could talk about having a job you hate and a job you love. But James is using wealth because it's something that we all grasp. But the need for material things. And he tells the wealthy man to glory in his lowliness. Their smallness to restrain those lofty motives which swell out of prosperity. Shut yourself down so you don't view yourself in a way that you should not. Are we doing that? Do we see this in our own lives? As we look at what God has given us, do we see the reason that He would give it to us? That our wealth is for the sake of us seeing. What we've been given is so that we would see our God for who He really is. We look at the text and we see that James is saying to those, for those uh, whom God loves and those whom God owns, to build your life on perishable riches, one person says, is spiritual prostitution. Because you are outsourcing your care, you are outsourcing your affection to things to whom it does not belong. Twelve, blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the big word in the Bible. In the original language, the word makarios is used there. It's a deep, God-given joy, not a circumstantial happiness. And the deep joy of God, it's the same word that we use in those Beatitudes. And it means that in God's kingdom, this different upside-down kingdom that God has given, we are not identified by what we have, but by who we have. Who we know, who loves us. Finally, we see two paths in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Verse 13, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. So you notice that you have a temptation and trial that we're talking about here. We're talking about tests versus trials. Tests ask a question. Who will you celebrate in your circumstance? Temptation answers the question and says, I'm going to celebrate me. I'm going to do what makes me feel good, what makes me feel right. I'm going to do what's best for me, not considering what God would have you to do that may be best for everyone around you. We love to blame things, though. We love the blame game. The devil made me do it. We say it. My friends made me do it. My circumstances made me do it. We, we see that temptation does not come from God. This passage reminds us of that. We're also reminded of this very truth that when we look into this passage in light of gospel teaching, that actual temptation comes from Satan. Satan meant Jesus to tempt him. Christian maturity is not marked by infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to it. 
So as we mature as believers in Jesus, we should succumb to temptation less than we did when we were younger believers. It's maturity because we are holding firm and we have an anchor that's moving that's helping us to see and live in a way that honors God. Each person is tempted, verse 14 says. Just let's read 13 through 18. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and he is enticed by his own evil desire. And after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. You notice desire, deception, disobedience, and death. That's the flow of how these things affect us, which is a great comparison for us to what we see in verse four, or 3 and 4. You know that testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. One ends with the lack of life. One ends with lacking nothing. Desire deception, disobedience, and death. That's what we see here. So we look, and as, as people who try to live as devil made me do it, people, we have to consider that the Bible is actually saying your sin is there. This is not a them problem. This is a me problem. My, my giving in is a me problem as a believer in Jesus. We have to own this for ourselves. James uses fishing language here. Look, I don't fish. I've never been able to catch fish. But there are some of our good guys at church who've taken my boys fishing lately. I'm hoping they'll also start dropping them off at school and mowing my grass. But they've taken the boys fishing and I've got some pictures from some of the things that have been caught. That's Shepard and and Cole. I don't know who caught. I'm sure Brent caught those. But he let the boy hold them up. So that's cool. That's Charlie. Charlie caught a, a very small fish with David Dusick. I got some more, I think. That, that, that's not Charlie. That was Alder. I don't even know who they are. That's Charlie with a fish bigger than him. I think I've got a picture of Noli. She, she caught a fish. So here's the thing about fishing. Uh, the whole idea when you fish is to make a fish think that it's getting something good when in actuality it's getting something terrible. When James uses the language of drawn away and enticed by evil desire, that's what he's alluding to. That we are people who are being drawn away by something that appears to be good, but in actuality it's terrible. Look, when we talk about the idea of of demons and demonic spirits in the Bible, I get questions from time to time in my office where someone will walk away in and they will say, do you believe that a Christian can be demon-possessed? What? No, I don't believe that. You can be possessed by one spirit. That's the spirit of the living God or, or not. However, when we look at the, the, the idea of what demons do and how they function, there is the idea of demonic oppression and those things making themselves known and putting a weight on us that is outside of us. However... There are extreme cases of demon possession in the Bible of those who are not believers. And in those situations, we see growling. We see super strength. We see salivation, I would imagine. That just, that's just in my head, but I'm thinking they're salivating. You could not mention Jesus around them. But believers are oppressed by sins that are much more seductive, much more enticing. Lust, 
greed, hatred, a lack of forgiveness. That's not outside stuff. That's in you. That's in you. So we're going to spend our time in the book of James looking at everything that James teaches. And I just want to remind us that it's, a, it's telling us that there's a struggle that's there. But the struggle is not with you, between you and the person sitting next to you. The struggle for us to live more like Jesus and to see our difficult situations as trials that make us more like Him. You make that decision by the power of the Spirit. You and I have a you problem. I've got a me problem. And it will always be out of heaven. It shows up differently in each and every one of us. Sometimes those are even more socially acceptable. But that me problem is there. Because I will always want to elevate me when God is saying that He is the only one worthy of honor, glory, and praise. So we're promised this crown of life. And and we hear from the Bible that those who would not choose the crown of life, that those who would follow this pattern that James paints for us would end in death. Even as we talk about temptation, though, we're reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 in that same Sermon on the Mount when He begins to tell us how to pray in the same way that James is saying to us to pray here, asking God for wisdom, asking God to fulfill us. We see this, that Jesus says that we should pray, lead me not to temptation, but deliver me from evil. God has a desire for us to be in a relationship with Him that does not just exist for those around us, but exists to redirect us. Lead me not to temptation. I don't want to go that way. I don't want to lean that direction. I want to move a different direction. Deliver me from evil. James says this in 16 through 18, Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. What he's pointing out to us is that we are unlike God when there is a lack of stability in us. And if our hope and our goal is that we be more like Jesus, we need to learn to stabilize ourselves in the fact that God is completely stable. And that He will carry us through by His own choice, the Bible says. He gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be kind of first fruits of His creatures. God intends for us as believers in Him to be a gift to people who interact with us. The first fruit language used here is the idea of blessing. It's the idea of gifting. It's the idea of caring. It's the idea of showing. And God is saying that He wants, as the Father of lights, who is working in us and through us, not through temptation, but allowing us to be tested, He's saying to us that each and every one of us who have belief in Jesus, so I don't know your heart, you know your heart, that we are to be a gift and blessing to people who interact with us. Given to them by God. So are you. Do you. 
Are you choosing to be the gift that God intends for you to be? As you ask Him for wisdom as to how to do that. Here's what I would like for us to do this morning. I want us to bow our heads. And we're going to sing in a moment. And that's, we should sing. Because we want to give honor and praise and glory to the Father of lights. But I want us to have an opportunity today just to care for one another. If you're in a situation right now that you would consider a trial, my elders are alert, my deacons are alert, my life group leaders are alert. If you would say, I'm going through something hard right now. Something difficult right now. And I'm kind of at the end of my rope with this. Could you raise your hand? I'm going through something hard right now. And it's difficult. And I don't know what to do. Could you raise your hand? I've got some hands up. If I could have some people move some of those names, those elders, those deacons, those life leaders. If you see one of them, could you just move toward that person and pray over them right now? Can we do that? This isn't a bad thing. This is a good thing. We should pray. James will actually say, pray over one another. Anybody else that would say, hey, I'm dealing with some stuff right now. Could someone come pray for me? Okay. Another right here. Yeah. And you don't have to be in one of those groups uh, that I mentioned. If you just feel compelled or led to pray for someone whose hand may be up, you feel free to move toward them. That's okay. Anybody else? I'm walking through hard things right now and I would love just for someone to pray over me anybody anybody Secondly, some of these temptations lead to, to a, a feeling like we're alone, that we're the only one going through this. Feel free to still be praying. For us as a church, one of the ways that we deal with that, it's not the only way, but it is the idea of we hope to put you in groups where all that you're doing is not listening to me talk, but you're having conversations about what the Bible actually says. So tonight we actually have a brand new life group starting. And if you're not in a life group here at Grace, if you're not part of one, I would love to make sure you're connected to a group. 
If you're thinking, I don't want to go in to people who've been spending months together. Tonight's a great night for that because I've got a brand new one. And if you would say to me today, hey, could you show me how to get there? Can you tell us how to get there? We can do that. I'm going to be at the back of the room. I'm going to be in a state of prayer over us this morning. And I'm going to ask that you, that God would move in us in a way where we would see that following Him is not just about facing forward, but facing toward one another. So Jesus, we do trust you this morning. Our hope is you. Our our desire is to, to bring glory and honor to you. Not just by what we do in here, but by how we live our lives. God, I pray that these people you have called me to would be a blessing and be first fruits in the lives of those they interact with. Friends, if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, again, I would love to share with you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Because you can't deal with your sin, only He can. You can't give yourself hope looking inwardly. Hope comes from outside of you. And that is in the death and resurrection of God's Son. That He gave freely so that you may know Him. So if you need to talk to me, I'm in the back of the room. If you don't want to talk to me, then you can connect to us through our, the site that you saw earlier. Connect.gbctx.org We would love to follow up with you, but we would love for you to know that Jesus cares for you. Lord, thank you for this morning. We ask all this in your powerful, holy name.